0: Our topic tonight is an exciting one. It's entitled, The Mark of the Beast and the Seal of God. And before we get into this presentation tonight, let us bow our heads one more time for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, as we approach this sensitive topic, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here, that you would please speak to us. Lord, we see that this is a major issue here in the last days, and Lord, we... We want to be on your side, Father. We want to follow you wherever you lead us, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us now as we study. Lord, give us understanding and help us, Lord, to see these truths clearly from your word. We love you. We thank you for this time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you mention the subject of the mark of the beast, it brings up many different images in people's minds. When meetings like this occur on prophecy, often the Mark of the Beast presentation in 666 is one of the most looked forward to presentations, because people want to know. They want to know what this Mark of the Beast is. And uh, many people have this idea that Revelation is primarily about the Mark of the Beast. But many do not realize that the book of Revelation is primarily about Jesus. Amen? It is the revelation of who? Jesus. Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation is primarily about Jesus. So whatever this mark of the beast is, it must have to do with this universal struggle that we've been looking at in our series, this great controversy that is going on between Christ and Satan. It must be significant if an entire chapter of the book of Revelation is devoted to this topic. And uh, many people are very confused about this topic, and I pray that tonight this presentation will help bring understanding. So in order to understand the mark of the beast, we first need to know who is the beast power. Once we know who this beast is, then it will be much easier for us to determine what his mark is. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible tells us, Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now keep this in mind, friends. Bible prophecy did not come by the will of man. John the Revelator and Daniel the prophet did not just make this stuff up. This was something that God revealed to them and they wrote it down for us to benefit from it. They wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the mark of the beast shouldn't be something that we have to guess at. The book of Revelation clearly unfolds who this beast's power is. And sometimes people have wondered the question, well, is the beast a person? And in fact, many have thought that uh, the beast was Adolf Hitler. And uh, they say that if you take Adolf Hitler's name, it somehow adds up to 666. So they say, well, he must be the beast. Others have thought that this beast could be some other political leader that's alive today. Some have even played around with numbers and names, and they've suggested that it could possibly be some of the presidents of the United States of America. And another question that some people ask is, well, is the beast an organization? And if so, is it a political organization or is it a religious organization? And we will find that out tonight. We'll also look at what 666 means. And then there's another question, and it's a very important question, is how can I avoid the mark of the beast? We do not want to receive that, amen? We want to receive the seal of God. The book of Revelation clearly reveals the answers to these questions, and uh, now when we study the book of Revelation, we must remember that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and just as the beast has a sign or mark, Jesus also has a mark or seal. The book of Revelation does two things. It reveals truth, and it also exposes error. Revelation talks about this struggle that is going on, the great controversy. And in light of this great controversy, there is a struggle between true worship and false worship. And and that is what the final crisis centers over in these last days. So let's go to Revelation chapter 13 tonight. You're welcome to follow along on the screen or open up your Bibles to Revelation 13. We'll be there primarily uh, tonight. Revelation, chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. So the Bible describes this dreadful beast which comes up from where? comes up out of the sea. Now remember that Bible prophecy often uses symbols to describe powers and events, world powers and events. The reason that God does this is that so that his word can be preserved from the enemies of truth that might want to destroy it, because they don't know how to decode the Bible symbols, and if and if they did, they would probably want to destroy these prophecies and God's word. But friends, with the Holy Spirit's help, we can we can understand God's word, amen? He wants to reveal his truth. That's why it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's unveiling himself. He is revealing his truth to us in these last days. So notice that this beast comes up out of the sea. That is very significant. And we wanna see what that means here tonight. So let's let scripture interpret itself. Just a few chapters later in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 15, The Bible says, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So here we see that waters, or seas, represent peoples in Bible prophecy. So when this beast comes up out of the sea, it comes up out of a relatively highly populated area of the world. Now the Bible talks about this beast in Revelation 13 as being like four beasts. It says that it's like a lion a bear, a leopard, and a dragon. Now, previously, in previous presentations, we've talked about what a beast represents in Bible prophecy, and we'll review here just briefly. It says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 23, um, it says, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So it's clear that in Bible prophecy, a beast represents a kingdom or a political power. Unfortunately, many people are misled in our in our day, and they think that the beast is just an evil person. But it, the beast powers in prophecy represent nations or political powers. But the but the beast here represents a political and religious power. According to the to the beast here, according to the Bible, beasts do not represent people. Um, and I just mentioned that here. Revelation 13, 2 describes the beast further. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority, the Bible says. So whoever this beast is, he gets his authority or the seat of his government from the dragon-like beast. Now remember, we looked at Daniel chapter 7 in a previous study, where the Bible talks about a lion, and it says that that lion represented which kingdom? Babylon. We also see that there was a bear which represented Medo-Persia, then there was a leopard that represented the nation of Greece, and then there was a dragon-like beast which represented pagan Rome. Now remember, in Bible prophecy, God uses animals to describe nations, and do we sometimes do that in our world today? We do. Uh, In fact, we even use animals to describe political parties in the United States. For instance, if I were to mention an elephant, you would think of which political party? Republicans. If I say donkey, you would think of Democrats. Democrats. So what about nations today? What animal do you think uh, represents America? It would be the bald eagle, right? And what about Great Britain? What animal? A lion, lion, that's right. And uh, one of the great mistakes that people make uh, when it comes to uh, interpreting Bible prophecy is that they try to take animals from today, and they try to apply them to Bible times. But we need to discover what animals symbolized which nations in Bible times, not what animals symbolize the nations of today. In Bible times, Babylon was represented by a lion with eagle's wings. And you'll find this on the walls of Babylon. This is one of the walls that they found. It's in the British Museum. Uh, in Bible times, a, a bear represented Medo-Persia, and also in Bible times, Greece was represented by a leopard, and the dragon was represented by pagan Rome. Now uh, look here at Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. It says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. So who is this child that the dragon is about to, wants to destroy? It is Christ. That is right. That is right. So we've seen that in the Bible, the dragon represents Satan. And in Revelation chapter 12, Satan works through pagan Rome to try to destroy Jesus. It was a Roman official, Herod, who passed the decree that all male children should be killed. It was a Roman ruler who attempted to kill baby Jesus. You remember that it was also a Roman governor who sentenced Christ to death. A Roman soldier crucified Jesus. A Roman emblem sealed Jesus' tomb, and Roman soldiers guarded his tomb. And in Revelation chapter 13, the devil is working through pagan Rome, and he would give this new power the seat of his government. So, who did pagan Rome give its power, throne, and great authority to? Well, there are at least six identifying characteristics describing this religious and political system mentioned in Revelation 13. The first clue which helps us identify who this power is, is that this power received the seat of its government or authority from ancient pagan Rome. So let's go to one of the most well-respected professors of all of Roman history, it's Professor LaBianca. And he taught history for many years in the University of Rome, and he made this observation. He said, to the the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff, that is, the pope. Now, what does the Bible say? It says that the dragon gave him uh, power, right? It gave him his throne or his seat and great authority, so as the Roman Empire was falling apart, it was, it was crumbling, Constantine recognized this, and he ended up, um, he recognized that his empire was being overthrown by the Germanic tribes um, from the north, and so um, he decided that he was going to move his capital from Rome over to Constantinople, uh, which is now in modern-day Turkey, known as Istanbul. So he created this, this new capital, and rather than leaving Rome vacant, He gave the seat of his governmental authority to the popes of Rome. In fact, this is what, uh, let's look here at Stanley's History of the Eastern Church, page 197. It says, the popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. Friends, tonight we want to look at the clear teachings of the Bible, because the Bible makes the identification of this beast power very clear, and history verifies it. Now, in our presentation tonight, it's not our desire in any way to hurt or offend any individual um, of any religious system. There are many fine people in the Roman Catholic Church who love Jesus and who are following the light the best that that they know. And... um, And remember, friends, that the beast is not a person. It is a religious political system. So the beast of Revelation 13 describes a religious political system that would grow up out of Rome. And it's the same power as the little horn power that we saw in previous presentations in Daniel chapter 7. It would gradually compromise the truth Of God's Word. Traditions would slip into the Christian church as we saw last night and uh, Protestant communions, Protestant denominations would eventually, many of them, accept those traditions. So let's look at the evidence objectively tonight. We're going to consider the facts of history and then ask the question God, what do you want me to do with the with the things that I'm learning? We already saw the first clue and the first clue is that the dragon, pagan Rome, would give the seat of its government to another power. Here's the second characteristics in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 it says all who dwell on the earth will worship him So number 2 this power would become a worldwide religious system The third characteristic in Revelation 13:5 says and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies Now, most of the time when we think of blasphemy, we think of someone like openly uh, cursing God. We think of someone that denies the existence of God. But the Bible defines blasphemy quite differently. In scripture, blasphemy occurs when an earthly power or a human being assumes the privileges and prerogatives of God, such as forgiving sin. But friends, who alone can forgive sin? Jesus, right? and him alone. He is our only savior. The Bible says in 1 Timothy two five, it says, For there is one man and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 7.25, the Bible says, Therefore he, that is Jesus, is is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's making intercession for us now. That is good news, friends. So friends, I can never approach God unless I have a priest. And I need a priest. And I, the good news is, is that I have a priest. And my priest is Jesus Christ. Amen? He is my intercessor in heaven. Now let's look at what the Bible says here about blasphemy. Jesus was actually accused of blasphemy. Why? Well, in John 10.33, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus claimed to be God. And friends, was this blasphemy? No, it was not. Why? Because he is God. He is God. Jesus had the privileges and prerogatives of God because he is God. He had the authority to forgive sin because he is God. And so it was not blasphemy for him to consider himself equal with God the Father. So the Jews attempted to stone Jesus because he claimed to be God because they did not believe that he was God, right? So does the Roman church make this claim? Well, let's see here tonight. Here are the encyclical letters directly from the papacy of Leo Thirteenth, and he says this. Pope Leo XIII said, We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Now, friends, is this blasphemy? Absolutely, he's claiming the authority, um, he's claiming the place of God Almighty. That is blasphemy. So the history of the Roman church speaks for itself. Now uh, let's look at another aspect of blasphemy. Mark chapter two, verse seven says, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They say, they, here they say that Christ is a blasphemer because he claims to forgive sins, but could Jesus forgive sins? Of course he could. Because he had the privileges and prerogatives of God. He was God. But ladies and gentlemen, here in a book called Dignity and Duties of the Priest, volume 12, it says this. It says what uh, the priest's duties were. It says, God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest, and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest proceeds and God subscribes to it. Wow. Wow. That, have mercy. Now, friends, is God obliged by the judgment of priests? No, absolutely not. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name besides Jesus that we can be saved. Amen. First John chapter one, verse nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's only one way to forgiveness and that is through Jesus Christ. There's only one priest that the Bible talks about and that is Jesus who stands before the throne of God. Revelation is leading us back to Jesus, not to a man-made system of religion filled with human traditions. So the third characteristic is that this power would claim equality with God, which is blasphemy. The fourth fourth characteristic is found in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. It says that it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So this power would, uh, would become a church-state power, and, and it was during the time of the Dark Ages that this power had its, was at its, the peak of its power. And Bible-believing Christians were condemned to death, as we saw last night, for standing up for what they believed in, for standing up for God's Word. Now, you ask any uh, church historian, did church and state under uh, Rome persecute those who do not go along with its teachings? And they will say, yes, look at what the Western watchman says, which was actually written by a Roman Catholic friend on December 23, 1908. It says the church has persecuted. Only a tyro or a beginner or a novice in church history will deny that. So they admit that there was a lot of persecution in the dark ages. Now here's another fascinating quote. It's from Public Ecclesiastical Law, Volume 2, page 142. It says the church may by divine right confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their persons, and condemn them to the flames. And friends, the church believes that the most serious crime is heresy. So uh, therefore, heresy can be punishable by inflicting civil punishments according to to the church. And they they believe that they're doing everybody a favor because they're stomping out heresy. The fourth characteristic we see is that it would be a persecuting power, and indeed it was. Let's look now at the next characteristic. Revelation 13.5 says, And he, that is the beast's power, was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for how long? 42 months so the papacy was given given authority for 42 months now would this be literal months or would this be symbolic months it would definitely be symbolic so how long is 42 months in bible prophecy well let's do some bible math here tonight in bible prophecy one prophetic day equals one literal year In Ezekiel, we've looked at this before. This is not new for our Unlocking Prophecy Seminar. In Ezekiel 4, 6, uh, the Bible says, I have given you a day for a year. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, it says, I have appointed a day for a year. And those are texts you can go and look up at home as well. So friends, if we're talking about 42 months and there are 30 days in each month, that's how they calculated the months in those days. The ancient uh, calendars of the Hebrews, the Egyptians, uh, the Assyrians uh, all had 360 days in a year or 30 days each month. So 42 prophetic months times 30 days would be 1,260 prophetic days. But if a prophetic day equals a literal year, that time mentioned here would be 1,260 years. So when would this prophecy begin? Well, the prophecy of the 1260 years begins in AD 538, when the Roman emperor Justinian gave the Pope of Rome religious and civil authority. It was a very significant year in history. Then according to the prophecy, the papacy was to last for 1,260 years, and then it would receive a deadly wound. And that brings us down to the year 1798. Well, what happened in 1798? In 1798, Napoleon felt challenged by the Pope of Rome, and so he sent his general Berthier down to Rome to take the Pope captive. And Berthier entered Rome in 1798, just as the prophecy predicted. He took the pope captive, and he brought him back to France, and the pope died in captivity. He died in exile. So what does history tell us about these remarkable events? Well, in Church History, page 24, it says the murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city. What city would that be? Rome. And putting an end to the papal temporal power. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile to Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope, they declared, had resigned. So this was a big moment in prophetic history. So what does the Bible say would happen after this deadly wound? Well, in Revelation 13, 3, the Bible says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed after the beast. So according to this verse, sometime in the future from from, uh, from 1798, this deadly wound would be healed. Notice this incredible statement uh, that appeared in 1929 in the San Francisco Chronicle. It says, the Roman question tonight was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. So here the Italian leader Mussolini, and a Catholic cardinal by the name of Gasperi, signed a historic Roman pact. And notice the language that they use to describe this pact. It says, in affixing the autographs to the memorable document, healing the wound, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. So friends, we see from the Bible that this deadly wound would be healed. And here in the San Francisco Chronicle, it, interestingly enough, uses the same exact language of the wound being healed. So in 1929, the papacy once again became a church-state power, and the prophecy was fulfilled exactly. And I would say that this is the first step of the deadly wound being healed, because the the wound is still, I think, healing and growing. This power is growing um, more and more each and every year. So characteristic number five is that this beast power reigns for 1,260 years. And the Bible goes on to describe another characteristic in Revelation 13:18. It says, "Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding do what? Calculate. Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man; his number is 666." Now notice that God revealed to John that this number could be calculated. That is significant, friends. This is a number that God wanted people to be able to calculate to understand what this was referring to. And interestingly enough, one of the official titles of the papacy is Vicarius Filii Dei, or the Vicar of the Son of God. The number has to be linked to the head of the organization of, of, of uh, his official title. Now, if it's a Roman power, then it would seem that you would need to use Roman numerals to discover its meaning. Roman numerals give you numerical calculations for each letter. So when you look at this name, Vicarious Dei and we see the numer- numerical value of the word vicarius is 112. Now, notice that the A, the R, and the S don't have a number next to them, and that's because they had no numerical value in that time. So the same would be true of other letters that are left blank in the upcoming two words. Phili has the num- numerical value of 53, and De, which means God, is, is a, a value of 501. And when you add all those together, it adds up to 666. It was, this was an official title used by the popes uh, throughout the centuries. Uh, for the Popes of Rome. Now, you might say, well, well, look, John, you know, maybe your name adds up to 666. <laughs> and friends, whether my name adds up to 666 or your name adds up to 666 is of little consequence, because remember, there are other identifying characteristics of this beast's power, which I do not fulfill, and neither do you. Amen? <laughs> Now let's review the the characteristics of this first beast and what we've covered thus far tonight. We saw that this power would first grow up out of Rome and that it would get its authority from pagan Rome and the papacy did just that. Secondly, it would be a worldwide religious power and the Roman Church is. Third, its leaders would claim equality with God and the ability to forgive sins and the Roman Church does just that. The priests claim that they can forgive sin and that God subscribes to that, remember? And fourth, fourth characteristics, at times the church would persecute, and history records that that's exactly what happened. Fifth, it would be a power that would reign for 1,260 years and then receive a deadly wound, and uh, we know that that wound would eventually be healed, and it continues to gain power to this day. And sixth, its most exalted title of the papacy would be 666. Then the Bible says that this power, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the question is, is what is the mark of the beast? Well, whatever the mark of the beast is, it is opposite of God's sign. Because for every counterfeit, there is a genuine. For everything false, there is something true. So the opposite of the mark of the beast must be a genuine mark or seal or sign of God. So, to understand the mark of the beast, we must first understand God's seal, his sign or his mark. So, let's go to Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, and see what the Bible says about the seal of God. It says, Then I, John, saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees. Till we have sealed the servants of our gods where? On their foreheads. Now notice that the mark of the beast can be received in the forehead or in the hand. But God's people only receive his seal in their forehead. So what what is the difference? Well, the mark of the beast in the forehand indicates that people have been deceived to choose the beast's way. They have been misled. They have accepted falsehoods rather than truth. And the mark of the beast in the hand indicates that they have been forced to do something against their will. Even if they don't intellectually believe it, they still yield to the pressure. They have been coerced into it. But friends, God does not coerce. God does not force us because love cannot be forced. Amen? So if, God, if God's people only receive his seal in their mind, that means that they accept this sign freely and willingly. So what does the Bible mean by sign or seal? Well, in Romans chapter 4.11, the Bible says, And he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of, of the righteousness. So in the Bible, a sign or seal or a mark is, is the same thing. So where is God's seal found in the Bible? Well, it is found in the Ten Commandments. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16 says, Seal the law among my disciples. So what is God's seal? Here it is. Ezekiel 20, 12 tells us what the sign is. It says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a what? To be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who does what? sanctifies them. God is the one who sanctifies us. So God's sign of loyalty is the seventh day Sabbath, which exalts God as creator of heaven and creator of earth. The Sabbath is God's special sign. It's his seal. It's his mark. And it reveals our allegiance to the creator God instead of the beast power. Now there's something else about the seal that is very significant. Every seal makes a document legal and a seal uh, authenticates a document. Um, Every authentic seal has three things. Number one, it has the name of the one that's sealing. Number two, it has the title of the one that's sealing. And number three, it has the domain of the one sealing. For example, if you wanted an official seal of the United States government in the days of Abraham Lincoln, it would say Abraham Lincoln, president, that's his title, "of, of what domain? the United States of America. So every authentic and legal seal will answer those three questions. So God has a seal and it uh, contains these three things and it's found in Exodus chapter 20 verse eight in the heart of the 10 commandments. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you should labor and do all your work but the seventh day is the Sabbath of who? The Lord your God, in it you shall do no work For in six days the Lord, that's his name, that's his name, he made, that shows his title as maker or creator of all, Uh, it says that for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and that shows God's domain, right, his territory, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and did what? He hallowed it. So here in the heart of God's law, in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath authenticates the entire Ten Commandments. When the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not steal, you could say, why not? Why shouldn't I kill? Well, it's because the Lord said not to, and that's his name. His title is maker or creator, and his territory is heaven and earth. So the Sabbath commandment contains God's name, his title, and his territory, It seals the law, making it binding on all. That's why God says in Ezekiel 20.20, he says, hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So friends, the Sabbath is a sign of loyalty or faithfulness to the creator God. The Sabbath is God's mark. It's his symbol that we may know him and worship him as our creator God. And the central issue regarding um, the mark of the beast is this issue of worship. We see worship is mentioned so many times in the book of Revelation. And we know that there is true worship and there is false worship. Notice how the Bible describes it here in Revelation 14, 6 and 7. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So here is a call in Revelation chapter 14 to worship our creator God. It's a call to true worship. And just a couple verses later, it gives us a warning in verse 9. It says, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now friends, God doesn't want anyone to worship the beast and that's why this urgent message goes out at the at the end of time. And friends, that's why I preach I have to preach messages like this. It's not always easy, but friends, I have a moral obligation. I want to share God's truth. Amen. I want people to be warned of what is to come. And in just two more verses, we see that God describes his end-time people here in Revelation chapter 14, 12. It describes God's last day people in these words, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So let's summarize here. We see that in Revelation fourteen, seven, there is a call to true worship, and that is worshiping the creator God. And just two verses later, in verse 9, there's a warning against false worship. And then just a few verses after that, in verse 12, it presents God's end-time people as being a commandment-keeping people. Friends, it's clear that this end-time issue is over worship. God will have an end-time group of people that worship him and keep all of his Ten Commandments. So if the Sabbath is a sign of worshiping the Creator, what is the beast's sign or his mark? Well, what does the Roman Church claim is the sign of its authority? It's only fair to look at what the Church says about itself, right? So notice what the Catholic record says on September 1, 1923. It says, Sunday is our mark of authority. The Church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Wow. So there it is, friends, right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And, and they're not hiding this stuff. This is available. You can see this stuff online. So here we see that God's mark is the Sabbath, but the Roman Church claims that its mark is Sunday. Here's another statement from St. Catherine's Church. It's uh, from their church newsletter, May 21, 1995. It says, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The Holy Day... The Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Isn't that amazing, friends? That's coming from a Catholic church newsletter. This is not coming from a Seventh-day Adventist church newsletter. This is, I believe, very significant. Um, I, I think the question needs to be asked, though, what about bible be, Bible-believing bible Christians that love Jesus and worship on the first day of the week? Do they have the mark of the beast? Well, friends, the answer is no, they do not. I want to make this very plain here tonight. They, no one has the mark of the beast at this time. That won't happen until the laws are enforced, until this Uh, Sunday worship is enforced by laws because remember it says that this beast power causes them or forces them to receive the mark of the beast. So there must be an element of force involved in this uh, Sunday observance. Now how can that happen you say? How can that happen in free America? Well friends we've actually had Sunday blue laws before and uh, even here in free America. Let me show you what was said some years ago by Pope John Paul II. He said, Christians will naturally strive to ensure civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. So Rome is determining that there will be legislation, laws that are passed, setting Sunday aside as a holy day. And even in some European countries, there are already some Sunday laws prohibiting work on Sunday. But no one has the mark at this time here's what the bible teaches there are many christians who love jesus but they do not understand the central issues in these last days and uh, many of them have never had an opportunity to study this topic out they've never had an opportunity to come to a seminar like this but they're faithful christians and they're living up to the light that god has given them in their hearts they want to serve christ But they do not fully understand that there is a church system that has changed God's law from Sabbath to Sunday. They do not understand that this church system claims uh, the mark of its authority is to be placed, is to place tradition above the Bible. But before Jesus returns, he is going to make these issues clear to all of humanity. Before the coming of Christ every hearted every honest-hearted person will have an opportunity to understand the issues at hand. Do you remember in the days of, of Daniel that church and state united and there was a decree that was passed that enforced worship while well, the entire the entire state was forced to bow down and worship and this was contrary to the commandments of God and in the future church and state will unite again. And uh, it is at this point when the issues are clear that the mark of the beast will be enforced and worship will be commanded by force. So people will give in for two reasons. Number one, they are genuinely deceived in these last days, deceived by the deceptions of Satan. There will be signs and wonders, the Bible says. And number two, they will give in for economic reasons so that they can buy and sell, so that they can provide for their family. Out of desperation, they will give in to the mark. At this point, though, people must make their decision. Will they be faithful to God or will they give in to this beast power? In these last days, the final issue of loyalty will center around worship. And many of us are facing the decision tonight. We're facing the decision between truth and and tradition we're facing the same decision that many others have faced in their journey with christ these decisions and issues are about worship it's more than just a matter of days friends it's a matter of masters it's a matter of authority it's it's about who has your heart who has your loyalty and friends god is calling us from this mark of the beast power and he's calling us back to his holy word amen amen He's calling us to his word. He's calling us to take a stand to follow Bible truth. In every age, God has called men and women to stand for him. In the days of Noah, God invited his people to take a stand. It was not popular in Noah's day, and it, it may not be popular today, but God is inviting you and I to take a stand. In the days of Daniel, God invited his people to take a stand. It was not popular in Daniel's day. Everyone else was bowing down to the image. But Daniel and his friends stood, friends. God is inviting us to stand. In the days of Jesus, God invited his people to stand. It was not popular in Jesus' day to follow Christ. The large popular way has never been the way of, of Christ. The Bible says that narrow is the way that leads unto eternal life. In the days of the early Christians, God invited his people to take a stand. And for them, for some of them, it meant martyrdom. It meant being burned at the stake. In the Dark Ages, God invited his people to once again take a stand. And faithful Bible-believing Christians, as we saw last night, stood up for Christ, and, and many of them were persecuted. In John chapter 4, verse 26, the Bible says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in what? spirit and in truth. It's very important, friends. God wants his people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth is important, amen? We want to follow truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In the last days, God invites his people to take a stand. And if you know what God wants you to do, but yet you hesitate because it's unpopular and and you're worried about what others will think, You need to take a stand for Christ, amen, no matter what other people think of you. And friends, God is is reaching out to us today, inviting us to take a stand for him. Will you say to Jesus tonight, Lord, I see the issues. I see the issues, and I want to take a stand on your side. Is that your desire tonight? Amen. Let us pray together here as we close. Father in heaven, Lord, we've seen the issues are clear here in these last days. Lord, we see that there will be this beast power that arises and seeks to enforce worship. But Lord, we know that you are not about that. Lord, you are not like that at all. You you do not force people to do things like this, Lord. And, and we are so grateful for that, Lord. We're so grateful that you woo us with your love that you have done everything that you can for us lord and that you're doing everything that you can lord you've died on the cross for us you have rescued us lord from sin and you are you have set us free lord and we pray that in these last days that you would help us lord to be faithful to you help us lord to not be deceived by this beast power help us to not be deceived by the signs and wonders that will take place help us lord to keep our eyes fixed on you and that we would learn to stand for you now While things are relatively easy and peaceful, Lord, help us to stand for you in the little things as well as the big things, so that when the great test comes here in the future, Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand faithful for you. This is our prayer, and we ask and pray that you would help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.